three, two, one. Thanks for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week we're going to be talking about the threat of nuclear war, uh, specifically between Russia, the United States, and the uh, and NATO. Last week, uh, the week of uh, May 2nd, an ABC News poll and Washington Post Gallup poll showed that 80% of Americans are concerned about the possibility of the war in Ukraine escalating to a nuclear war between Russia and the United States. So this is something that's on the public's mind uh, you know, 80%, that's a pretty high number. You know, so most Americans out there are worried about the potential for the, the conflict to escalate, uh, not just into a conventional war between the United States and Russia, but also into a, a nuclear war. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. What is the possibility or probability of that really happening, and how do we know? So those are sort of critical questions. But first, I wanted to start with a little bit of context um, just to supply uh, for this discussion so that we can have a, a little bit of an understanding about the nature of the subject that we're dealing with here. Nuclear weapons systems, which both Russia and the United States possess, are very complicated and very labor-intensive and very maintenance-intensive weapons systems. So they're very expensive, they take a lot of manpower, and if you don't provide constant upkeep and maintenance and monitoring and training for personnel to use them, it's very easy for those kinds of complex systems to either fall into disrepair or to not be fully functional. In other words, there's a chance that uh, if the weapon systems aren't maintained properly and personnel aren't trained effectively, you could go in there and push a button and the thing won't work uh, or, or, or it'll miss the target or it won't work like it's supposed to. And so just to give you a little bit of uh, background on this, there's a, a really excellent book called Command and Control, Nuclear Weapons, the Domestic Incident, and the Illusion of Safety, uh, written by an, a, a person named Eric Schlosser. And it's, it's an excellent book. And the focus of that book is to detail the Damascus incident, which was a nuclear weapons mishap that the United States suffered in Damascus, Arkansas back in 1980, where a routine maintenance procedure, one of the personnel performing maintenance on, on a Titan missile, which by the way, Titan missiles are no longer in service, but in 1980 they were, and one of the technicians who was performing the maintenance on there dropped a wrench from a, a very from a ladder. They were up on a, like a scaffolding in order to do one of the maintenance processes or procedures, and they dropped a wrench and it and it poked a hole in the side of the missile, uh, which started spraying out fuel, which is very toxic, inflammable. And long story short, before it was all said and done, there was enormous damage and an explosion at that complex, which actually blew part of it through the concrete protective roof of the silo. Um, and then Governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton, was notified of the situation and it received a little bit of national attention. Fortunately, there was no nuclear detonation and it doesn't look like there was really ever a danger of that happening. But what it shows you is that even in a very well-funded and well-trained uh, nuclear weapons force, a nuclear missile force, in other words, the, the people who use them are trained and funded and know what they're doing, even under the best conditions, 
mistakes can happen that can lead to significant destruction of property, equipment, and even endanger uh, to personnel. That can happen. And so I, I, here's why I tell you that. If you take a look at the budget for nuclear weapon systems that, that the United States and Russia use, and, and that's why I want to do that comparison because we're, we're talking about you know, a potential conflict between Russia and the United States. So if you look at the budget, the CBO projects that for the next 10 years, the total cost for America's nuclear weapon systems will be over $600 billion in the next 10 years. So that's, that's $60 billion a year roughly projected in, in cost just to maintain and keep working the current systems that we already have. You know that number is so high because we have an extraordinarily large number and different types of nuclear weapons. We have missiles that are on submarines, we have land-based ICBMs which means intercontinental ballistic missile, we have missile, we have weapons that can be dropped from from nuclear powered or nuclear bombers, that, such as the B-52 or the B-1 or even the B-2. So there's a lot of different types of weapon systems in a lot of different locations, and that's why that number is so high. So $60 billion a year for the United States to maintain its current nuclear systems. Russia, their entire defense budget for a year is $48 billion. So their entire defense budget is less than what we spend just on our nuclear weapons. And we still have problems in our nuclear weapons systems. We've had problems more recently with low morale amongst personnel who are assigned to missile bases. It's a very lonely sort of remote assignment because we built those things to be out in the middle of nowhere away from cities and towns so that if they ever got hit it would minimize civilian casualties. So I mean there's a reason why we put these things, a lot of our land-based silos anyway, in the, in the Midwest and in the Far West, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. So it's, it's a harsh assignment and there's low personnel. There's been scandals involved in some of our missile personnel amongst uh, for for cheating on on readiness tests, which are part of our training program. And so even with a even with more money and more personnel in our weapon systems, we have we've had problems with our, our nuclear weapons systems. So I don't think it's difficult to imagine that Russia on a on with a far smaller budget and small and far far fewer personnel could experience uh, problems with their nuclear weapon systems at the same time. I'm not saying that we should just assume that Russia's weapon systems are, are won't work. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is we live in a different world today than we did when the, I guess you could call it Cold War Part 1, uh, you know, from the end of World War II up through the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, which is what we typically think of as the Cold War period. It, it may be a little too soon to say we're already in a new Cold War, uh, or we could just be in a new phase or a continuation of the original. But during those years, uh, the 50s, 60s, you know, 70s, and 80s, and until the, the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, there was a constant threat of, of nuclear war, a very real threat. Both the United States and the Soviet Union understood that they possessed enough nuclear weapons to destroy the other, and because of that, there was a doctrine which was known as MAD, M-A-D, which is an acronym that stands for Mutually Assured Destruction. And during those years, the idea was 
because each side could destroy the other with nuclear weapons, no one would ever use them first. Right? You, you, it'd be suicide. If, you, if we launched against the Soviets, they'd destroy us in a retaliatory strike. And, and the Russians knew perfectly well, too, if, if they launched against us, the same thing would happen. They'd be wiped out. And so it sort of became uh, not a stalemate, but a standoff in which each side understood that they kept their weapons as a deterrent to prevent their, their enemy from using them, but they knew at the same time that using those weapons would be uh, a guarantee of their own destruction, and so no one ever did. Or at least that's the theory. And so the question is, when it comes to, when, when we consider this, this question of nuclear, the potential of nuclear war today, the question is, do we still live in a world where the rules of mutually assured destruction apply. In other words, do we still live in a mad world, or or do we not? And so that's sort of the, the topic I wanted to I wanted to go into that a little bit more detail because that has a lot to say about whether or not we live in a time where a nuclear conflict is more likely, the same or less likely than it was during the Cold War. And I want to begin by pointing out that many things have changed. Uh, since 1991. There's a lot of developments uh, just in the realm of technology alone, which has altered the equation, uh, that makes it more difficult to adhere to the framework of a mutually assured destruction kind of world. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. First of all, today, the United States has stealth weapons. We have the B-2, we have other stealth platforms that can carry nuclear payloads, and that cannot be observed by radar, or they're very difficult to observe by radar. Uh, whether or not Russia has similar stealth capabilities, I don't know. I don't believe they do. It's possible, however, that they do have those kinds of uh, weapon systems, and we just don't know about them. But in any case, we, we do know for certain the United States has them. So during the, uh, during the Cold War, there were no such weapons around. They were just notional. They were theoretical. We talked about having them, but we didn't actually possess them. And that's significant because one of the key components of a mutually assured destruction framework is, or rather was, the ability to detect an incoming attack almost instantly. So the Russians had radar systems and, and satellites. We had Russian, uh, we had radar systems and satellites. And so if either, either side launched an attack on the other, whether it was from a submarine or an aircraft, or a land-based missile, it doesn't matter. Anyway, no matter, any kind of launch would be detected. So if, if someone, if the other side was going to launch an attack, we would know about it, and so would the Russians. And that meant we could reliably look at our radar screens, see nothing, and conclude, or and our satellites, and conclude that since we saw nothing, that no attack was underway, and we could carry on with our, our daily lives without any additional you know, concern. Well, that's not the case today. Because stealth weapons can evade radar and satellite detection, now when we look at those, at least from the Russian point of view, when they look at their radar screens or their satellite tracking, they can't be sure that, that no attack is underway because we possess stealth platforms that can evade their, their um, radar and their satellites. So in the Cold War, this was called a first strike weapon. Stealth platforms were potentially a first strike weapon. And what that meant was, it's a, a type of system that would allow you to launch a nuclear attack first uh, and do so in a way that inflicted damage on the adversary and it limited or, 
or stop their ability to launch a full retaliatory strike. So in other words, the theory was if you had a first strike weapon like a stealth platform, you might be able to launch a nuclear strike on your enemy, take out their capability before they could retaliate and therefore win uh, or be victorious, at least in the sense of stopping uh, a retaliatory strike. So we have stealth weapons today and that changes the equation. Uh, we can no longer rely on that. So it's a, it's a little bit of a less stable situation thanks to stealth platforms. Another big problem today that did not exist during the Cold War is the Internet. And the reason why that matters is if you look back at Strategic Air Command, and even the Russians did this too, we, we, we had lots of war games and scenarios where we put together contingencies that we thought could happen, and we looked at what our response should be or could be or what we wanted it to be in those situations. So in other words, we prepared for a lot of different scenarios involving uh, nuclear attack from one side against the other. And many of those scenarios involved unusual situations where you might have a, a small-scale tactical nuclear weapon used in a, in a conflict zone. Would that automatically trigger a large-scale, uh, full full attack from one country to the other? What if there was a, an inadvertent launch? Uh, or what if someone took control of a single missile silo and launched a weapon without the authorization of, their, of the chain of command? Americans may be familiar with that last example from Dr. Strangelove, which was the, the movie that came out, which satirized uh, a rogue uh, general in the United States taking control control of his own uh, bomber wing and ordering them to attack Russia without authorization from the United States. Well, of course, the at the time it was released, Dr. Strangelove, you know, it created quite a sensation. The US military was very adamant that it was a that was a fictional depiction of events that could never really happen. Uh, but of course, the truth is, uh, even though it was improbable due to all the safeguards, it wasn't uh, as the case that it was zero, like the probability of that ever happening was not zero. It was pretty low. It's pretty close to zero, but it was not, we couldn't be 100% sure nothing like that would ever happen. So the scenarios we, we trained for and studied during the Cold War were based on a lot of different and unusual events, but almost all of them were predicated on the ability of the respective commands of the nation to re retain control of their nuclear forces. So in other words, the Russian uh, premier or president would control their nuclear weapons and the American president would control our nuclear weapons. And then we later found out that at least in the American case, President Eisenhower actually signed a, an executive order and was classified at the time, which under certain circumstances would authorize field commanders to employ nuclear weapons, specifically if Washington, D.C. were destroyed by a Russian attack and the president was dead, the vice president was dead, then the theory was we need, they needed that authority in order to launch a retaliation, or otherwise Russia could win just by taking out our, our, our top leaders. So that was authorized. So that, and that, was, that sort of echoed the, um, the scenario in Dr. Strangelove. Well, today we have the ability, thanks to not just the Internet, but also artificial intelligence and more sophisticated algorithms, we have the ability for the creation of what are known as deepfakes. And a deep fake is simply a synthetic construction of a person that has a, that looks like the person, sounds like the person, and appears in a video format uh, that you can see anywhere on the internet. But it's but it's not. It's either not a real person. It's a complete you know fict fictitious character, or it's it's a real person, but they're doing and saying things that they never actually said. And this is already 
appeared in Ukraine, in the, the current Ukraine war, a group of hackers there, presumably uh, who, who are pro-Russian, created a deep fake of Ukrainian President Zelensky, where he ordered all of Ukraine's armed forces to surrender. Now, of course, the real President Zelensky did not give such an order, but the deep fake of him looked authentic. It, it looked like him. It sounded like him. And so the hope was, from the, the folks who created it, that the Ukrainian forces would see and hear that, and at least some of them would, would surrender and give Russia a tactical advantage. And so that's an important uh, example, because what if a hacker or a group, a group of hackers decides to create a deep fake of President Biden or President Putin saying that they are about to launch a nuclear attack uh, against the other? And many people in the world believe that deep fake to be authentic. You can imagine the panic that would cause, the chaos that could cause. And it's even potentially possible that one side or the other might see that and think, okay, we've only got a few minutes to make a decision about whether or not that's an authentic message. And if we're wrong and they launch an attack and we're not prepared, then the damage will be much heavier on our side. So in other words, a deep fake doing something like that, a, a deep fake of a Russian or American president saying they're about to launch nuclear weapons or that they just did, could actually trigger a real response from the the other side. So you could see that, and, and it might cause um, the other side to launch a retaliation, even though no attack had been had been done. So that's that's something else that we did not possess. Um, that capability did not exist during the Cold War, but it does today. So what I'm saying is, thanks to the presence of stealth technology, and thanks to the existence of deep fake technology and the internet today. We do not fully live in a world where the rules of mutually destruction, sure destruction, apply. We we do still live in a world where the Russian government and the American government have no desire to bring about their own destruction. So, neither the Russian government or the American government are suicidal. There are a lot of things, but but suicidal is not one of them. But having said that, the underlying dynamics, the nature of the world, has changed in such a way that we live in a less stable environment than we used to. So we live in sort of a modified MAD, if you will, a modified uh, mutually assured destruction where the no one wants to use them, but because of new technology, the possibility of, of nuclear weapons coming into play is has increased since the, uh, since the end of the Cold War. So I think that, that threat has grown. And something else we ought to consider is the ability of either country to cope with uh, or survive, if you will, a nuclear attack. During the 50s and the 60s, and, and to a lesser extent, the, the 70s and 80s, you know, especially in the 50s, I'll go back to that example, you know, bomb shelters were really popular in the United States. People were buying those things like hotcakes. So people had bomb shelters, they had canned foods, they had radios, they had batteries, fuel. So there was a degree of preparation, and the, and the government provided citizens with instructions on what to do if there was a nuclear attack. You know, go to your shelter, here's the emergency broadcast system which will relay information, and people listened. Because at that time, whether it was for good or bad, they trusted their government to tell them what to do if there was an attack from an enemy. So they would listen. Think about how much that has changed today. Uh, number one, there's not a high degree of trust uh, in our government. And that, then that, that's true both here and, and in Russia. So it's possible today 
government authorities could issue a statement or, or guidelines on, on what to do, and a significant portion of the population would just laugh and call it fake news and not listen. We've already seen that happen with the pandemic, which was very real, yet there were people who believed it was fake. So it's not a stretch to imagine that there is a percentage of the population who would just laugh and say, nah, it's impending nuclear attack, that's fake news, I'm going on to work, uh, and not do anything. And so the damage would therefore be much greater after that attack ha- had been carried out. And and we live in a, a different society. Um, you know, home ownership has has decreased. A lot of people are more people are renters now, and that's that's due to economic necessity. So the days of homeowners with basement stock full of canned goods and battery powered radios has come to be replaced by people who rent apartments uh, and order a lot of their meals through takeout. So. If you're, if you're in the latter of that, uh, that lifestyle, your, your survivability after a nuclear attack, if you live through the initial, is much lower than it would have been during the original, during the Cold War, because we don't have the same type of, we're not living the same type of lifestyle uh, in terms of home ownership and where we get our meals from. You know, ordering out, I do it too, by the way, ordering out is very popular. A lot of people order a lot of their meals out now, especially after the pandemic, when, we've, when we couldn't go to restaurants. So delivery services have become very popular um, and which, you know, none of that will be available if, if, there's a, if your city is destroyed in a nuclear attack. So I would argue that our capacity to cope with uh, a nuclear attack or a nuclear war is much lower than it was uh, from the, the 1950s through 1991. So I would argue that both the potential for a nuclear attack is higher and our capacity to deal with it is lower. And all of that means that we live in a, I would argue, a more dangerous world today than we did during the original Cold War. And that's, that's not to say that we could not cope with um, the aftermath of a nuclear attack at all. As we've seen, individuals have, have shown, a, and private organizations have, have shown a, a growing and remarkable capacity to organize together to help provide relief efforts and to get you know, food and water to to areas that were hit by a natural disaster, like an earthquake or a hurricane, uh, or something like that. But those organizations and those those individual, either people or, or groups, depend on modern communications in order to to organize their efforts, so to raise money, or to get volunteers, or to or to send physically send you know relief supplies to where they're needed. And it's it's an open question as to whether any of that would be possible. Um, would the would the internet infrastructure survive a nuclear attack? And I don't know if that's a scenario that any of the government planners have looked at. Most of the time, when we talk about uh, after the nuclear nuclear war, we look at a situation where the power grid is either completely failed or mostly failed. So the question then would be: Would we still would there still be an internet capacity? And if so, to what degree would that exist? Could you still use your smartphones? after a nuclear attack. So I don't, I don't know that America is ready for that, or, or Russia for that matter, um, because we rely on those things so much for our daily life, and if it were suddenly taken away, then there would be a pretty significant gap in the ability of individuals and private organizations, not to mention the government, to organize together and, and provide any kind of uh, relief efforts. And most of the time when a natural disaster is hit, it's one location. You know, Hurricane Katrina, that's mostly New Orleans. Or, you know, an earthquake, there's normally one one area. So you can focus all your relief efforts on one area, whereas a nuclear 
strike would be that kind of devastation on, on dozens, if not hundreds, of locations. So our capacity to respond would be severely degraded. Now, all of that sounds like pretty bad news, and I, I guess it, it is, but we should, we should recognize that because we still have the fundamental principle that no one wants to uh, be destroyed themselves, that, that I think is the most important part of the, the, the mad paradigm. It was, it was called a paradigm because it was around for so long and, and we, we just became sort of, uh, you, could, you could go to a school or office or, or someplace and, and mention the word mad and, and people would know what you're talking about during the Cold War. So it just became, mad just became part of our everyday language. Everyone, a lot of people heard about it or sort of knew what it was. Um, but I think the most important part of that was the, the self-preservation instinct, so the ability to not want to be uh, completely destroyed yourself. And that still exists today. So that's the good news. Even though we live in an increased threat, a less stable world, where more things could, could go wrong or lead to an inadvertent uh, nuclear launch, the core principle is still intact, that no one wants that to happen. So it would be a fair question to ask if, if that core bedrock principle of MAD is true and no one really wants to use nuclear weapons, then why has Russia's president been issuing veiled threats about the use of, of those very uh, types of weapon systems? In, in the recent, uh, since the invasion of Ukraine, President Putin has made a number of statements which don't exactly, they don't give, they weren't overt threats uh, so much that he said, I, I'm going to launch nuclear weapons if this happens or if that happens. He didn't say that. But he sort of reminded the world that, hey, just in case you forgot, Russia is a nuclear power. Russia has nuclear weapons. Uh, just thought I'd let you know. That was sort of the, uh, the tone of the message that he, he's used in the past few weeks. And that's something else that's new uh, in terms of uh, the, the paradigm of thinking. Uh, during the Cold War, it was always thought that uh, conventional, a, a conventional war between the uh, United States and the Soviet Union would, there was a lot of war games and a lot of scenarios that how that might go. But for the most part, it was thought that, you know, we could keep it at a, at a conventional level because nobody wanted to use uh, nuclear weapons. Well, today we've already seen the Russian president use veiled threats of, of nuclear attack as a deterrent, not against our nuclear forces, but as a deterrent against our conventional forces. So in other words, he's using the threat of nuclear weapons to prevent any attacks on his own conventional forces in Russia. So the purpose of these statements is to prevent either the European uh, our European allies or our own military from becoming directly involved in the conflict in Ukraine. So that is also something that is that is quite new. You know, during the Cold War there were a number of, of proxy wars that went on uh, around the world in a number of different places. But those were all carried out using conventional weapons, which are, you know, ordinary explosives, bullets, those types of, that's what we call conventional weapons, non-nuclear. Uh, but today we've seen already a shift, excuse me, in that thinking where the Russian president is willing to threaten the use of nuclear weapons to keep his conventional forces safe from other conventional attack. So that's another new element that we have to deal with today that we did not have to, to cope with during the uh, original Cold War. Okay, so what can we do about it, right? Where, where do we go today with the conflict still going on in Ukraine? What do we do about this threat of nuclear weapons? Even if we wanted to, we can't get rid of them uh, before this conflict will be over. So we have to formulate a policy that will work knowing that we, we have nuclear weapons pointed at each other and that they could be launched at, at any time. 
I would remind folks of, of one of the key history lessons from the Cold War, and that is reciprocity. Reciprocity works. In other words, we saw that in the Cold War with the SALT I and SALT II treaties, which were which was SALT, which stood for Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. And those were both treaties signed between the United States and, the, at the time, Soviet Union to limit the number of intermediate-range nuclear missiles. In other words, when we agreed to reduce our, our number of intermediate-range missiles, the Russians did the same. We had inspectors who were permitted to travel to their bases to confirm that they had done so, and they had inspectors who were permitted to travel here to, to ensure compliance. Uh, in other words, even though ideologically the United States and the Soviet Union considered themselves to be uh, mortal enemies, uh, and even though they were involved in a standoff for, for many years in the Cold War, we could still conduct diplomacy. We could still sign agreements, and we could still enforce those agreements, and they would actually lead to a change in the conditions that both countries faced. And I believe that is still the case today. Uh, I'm not suggesting we could, we could sign a new SALT treaty. I don't think that's uh, very likely or, or a way to go. But what we can do is stand by our own policy that we will not use nuclear weapons First, we will not be. We will not use any first strike nuclear weapons, whether stealth or conventional, and we need to make sure that 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 policy is very publicly stated. Russia has already indicated that they don't want to use. Well, their government anyway has indicated that they don't want to use nuclear weapons first. Some Russian state TV channels have uh, gone into a little bit of overdrive, uh, talking about scenarios where they they would use nuclear weapons against Ukraine or they would destroy. Great Britain with a tsunami created by an underwater nuclear weapon. I, my personal assessment of those types of programs is this is the this is the Russian version of good cop bad cop. So the bad cop right threatens you with all these uh, ridiculous scenarios, and then the government official comes out and says, "Oh no, we don't want to do anything like that. That's we don't we don't support that." Uh, so the government then plays the role of the good cop, and then their state TV plays the role of the bad cop, uh, just to see how how people respond to it. But I do think that if we have a stated no first use policy uh, from the United States and the NATO side, that Russia will reciprocate. And their government has already indicated that they have such a place of their own in policy that they don't want to use nuclear weapons first. So as long as nobody ever uses them first, then nuclear weapons don't get used. And so that's the problem set that we're trying to solve in the short term, is to prevent the conflict in Ukraine from escalating into a nuclear war. And so I think that's a, a good way that we could prevent that from happening. Of course, there are longer, more long-term questions about how do we get rid of nuclear weapons in the long term, or can we get rid of nuclear weapons uh, over the long run? But that's a very different question uh, and not the focus of, of the show today or our policy. You know, that Right now, let's focus on no nuclear war, no escalation of the conflict in Ukraine into a nuclear war. That's our current goal. Once we achieve that, then we can start talking about more long-term uh, strategies about how to cope with and deal with uh, our, new, our aging nuclear arsenal, uh, both here and in, and in other countries abroad. And then we can have that discussion uh, at a later time. So I hope everybody enjoyed the, the show today. I thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day. Right.